What a great conversation with Jerry. He's such uh, an amazing guy. He's not only a, a baseball nut, but a true human performance nut. And you can just tell how passionate he is about talent identification and development. For me, he's one of those truly, truly first-class leaders out there working in tier one sport. And it's always such a pleasure to be able to speak with him. Now, we had Mark Shapiro on in episode seven, and we talked about the talent identification piece. And that also came up in today's conversation with Jerry. In that episode, we outlined the six key limitations that come with the traditional approach to talent identification. Today, I want to unpack what you can actually do about it. We're going to outline the tangible steps you can take in order to build out world-class talent identification pipelines. I want to start with a quote from the film Moneyball. If you haven't seen it, you need to. We spoke about it on the previous episode, but Mark was uh, featured on it. And it outlines how the underfunded, under-resourced Oakland A's go on to win a World Series, all due to their incredible talent identification. Now, in terms of starting out and optimizing your talent identification, there's a quote from that film that says it all for me. And it sets the tone for how we need to look at talent in terms of what we're talking about today. The quote's from Billy Bean, the GM of the Oakland A's, and he says, your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. In order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. And the key point here is that runs buy Bill's organization's wins. What strengths, interests, and values buy your organization wins? This will reveal what we're ultimately trying to screen for. And this is effectively step one of any and every great talent identification process. What are we trying to build? I refer to it as creating an avatar. The crucial first step is to transition away from the do they have talent question to the do they have the right talent. This crucial first step is about transitioning away from the do they have talent question to the way more useful do they have the right talent question. We need to understand the dimensions of the square hole that you're trying to fill before you can go out and start to find the right square peg. The better you know what you're looking for, the easier it is to find it. The avatar forces you to reflect, research, and form a hypothesis. There are three ways you can do this. One is what I describe as modeling excellence. Through identifying outlier performers who have excelled and eliciting their strengths, interests, and values, you can look for causal relationships between traits that are predictive of future success. The second option is reverse engineering. Once you're clear about the demands of the role, you can reverse engineer the strengths, interests, and values that are required to excel in it. What strengths will be required to deal with the challenges of the role? What will they need to be interested in considering how they'll be spending their time? And what values will they require so that the rewards of the role are meaningful to them? Three is to post-mortem failure. Identify what caused previous people to fail. What strengths, interests, or values could have turned things around for those individuals who didn't quite make the cut? The key thing here is to be specific. The reality is that most roles don't need an all-purpose athlete, investor, or author. Most roles have highly specific demands unique to the specific challenge and organization in question. The football manager wants a no-nonsense centre-half who doesn't stop shouting and shores up that leaky back line. The board want a CEO who can inject motivation and discipline into a flat and apathetic team. In all these cases, leaders are looking for people who are uniquely right for the job at hand. And a great avatar should reflect this. 
You need to move away from empty statements like intellectual distinction, capacity to guide a complex institution, or devotion to excellence. What does any of this even mean? My favorite of the empty statements organizations try to ram on every CV and screen for is resilience. Cherish value at most organizations, whether it's Goldman Sachs, the NHS, or MI5, they're all looking for candidates with resilience. Who isn't? The problem is that resilience is the product of an individual activating their psychological firepower, performing a role they're intrinsically and concordantly aligned with. It's not a general qualification gene or fixed entity. We need to stop matching candidates to a long list of universal traits that are too abstract and vague to accurately screen for and instead work out the critical factors that determine a concordant fit between the candidate and the role, boiling it down to the few specific things that matter most, avoiding vagueness like good with numbers, thick-skinned and confident. What does good even mean? How good? What numbers? In which environment? Under what kind of constraints? Under how much pressure? With reference to whom? The more specifically you define what you want from the performer, the more accurately you can screen in the right person. This understanding enables you to match candidates against the strengths, interests and values that are predictors for success in the role and determine which deficits just don't really matter. Going through this process allows you to formulate an accurate specification of what you're looking for that will give you higher conviction when you see that concordant performer. Values are key here. No one's going to work for your interests unless they are their own. You want true believers. When it comes to teams, values are the glue. And when they align, the team works with blood, sweat and tears. Most companies post artificial statements on their websites written by a PR company that have nothing to do with employees' actual values. Because they don't really mean anything, it's so hard for the team to rally around them. Instead, you must look at what the cultural architects within your organization truly value. You need to elicit what your own winning behaviors are, the values that make your organization unique. And then you need to find people concordant with them so that collectively you can bring the intensity you need to excel. A little tip here would be to also avoid screening for people whose primary and only value is money. You will eventually lose them. Remember, there's always someone with a bigger wallet than you around the corner. If not today, tomorrow there will be. Identifying and developing superstars that jump ship the moment someone makes a higher offer is best avoided. Now, on step two, we want to maximize the quality of your gene pool. Why do so many organizations go to extreme lengths to hire individuals from prestigious universities like Oxford, Cambridge, and Harvard? Successful organizations as well, like Google, Apple, Tesla, or academy athletes like uh, aspiring football players from Manchester City, Chelsea, or Manchester United. We might say that, well, it's obviously the quality of the training they've been given, but you'd be wrong. The talent is so in demand because it's so hard to get into these organizations in the first place. The majority of the value in elite organizations is in the talent identification way before any of the development work starts. That's not to say those who go to such organizations don't get good training, but that talent would generally get developed wherever it went. A general theme is that elite organizations are really hard to get into. At the University of Oxford, you're going to have to prove an IQ somewhere close to the 99th percentile just to get an interview. On top of that, you're probably going to require at least one, probably two other strengths, a fellowship in pianos, second or third language proficiency, or be an age group international athlete. So what's the message? 
your selection process must be hard. The challenge is you can't make selection hard if you don't have sufficient quality and quantity of candidates to do so. Culturally elite institutions like Google, Harvard and Manchester United can make their talent identification process hard because they can attract the best talent. And this is why your gene pool is so important. If you don't have the right caliber of applicants, then any screening is going to be seriously impaired. Too many organizations fail to target the right quantity and quality of applicants, and even fewer measure this. This exponentially reduces their chances of finding elite performers. It leads us to underestimate the quality and quantity of the talent pool, which causes us to panic, drop our standards, and accept mediocrity. You should never drop your standards. This is totally the wrong approach. If you accept talent below the minimum thresholds required to excel, you compromise performance and condemn your organization to mediocrity from the off. You must transition from who is the best of a bad bunch towards who meets the standard. If the answer is no one, you need to focus your effort on maximizing the quality of that gene pool, not dropping your standards. Get creative. Scouting where everyone else does provides no edge. We must strategically target candidates who align with our avatar and persuade them to apply for roles with us. This involves breaking down the barriers that might restrict the quantity and quality of people applying. Expanding your horizons, be it geography, status, gender, background, whatever it takes. Marketing the opportunity is key. Make a song and dance about why joining your organization is the right thing to do. If people don't know the opportunity exists, then how can they apply for it? Where might your avatar live? What social media accounts do they follow? What might they be doing right now? Go there and tell these people about the opportunities that exist within your organization. Another key point here is to communicate authentically who you are and what you can realistically offer. And I'm going to give you an example of how we did this at a company, Mandara Capital. And I'm going to give you an example of how I've literally done this. So a trading company that I'm a partner in compete for the same talent as the likes of Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley, and all the physical trading houses like Glencore, VTOL and BP. Now, these organizations can offer candidates double the starting salary we potentially can. They can offer them exposure to all the functions and of the finance and commodity space, plus the kudos of working for a massively established brands, right? Not to mention the job security that brings. We can't necessarily do that early on in our career. We don't have the huge base salaries to offer. We don't have corporate hospitality or sublime skyscraper offices. However, from a values perspective, we're an organization that offers a lot of relative autonomy, rapid progression, and the opportunity to trade from day one. So that's what we sell. The message is something like, look, here's the deal. You'll be trading from day one. You'll receive personal tuitions from experts daily. And if you're still here in two years, you should be expecting to earn multiple millions of dollars. But you will start on a salary half the industry standard. You will work 16-hour days. There are six maybe seven working days in our working week. You will eat, sleep and breathe trading, nothing else. You'll get the night bus to work at times. Your social life will suffer. You will receive lots of direct candid feedback and you'll be chucked so far out your comfort zone, you won't believe it's possible. And there's a 33% chance you won't make it. Now, if you're not concordant with that setup, then you're not concordant with that company. And that's fine. However, the right candidates will salivate 
at that opportunity. Right, then we move to step three. We need to design screening tests. I would describe these as information gathering instruments. Here's the thing. Looks can be deceiving, but actions aren't. The actor must step on stage. The baker must bake his cake. The teacher must teach. It's time to see right here, right now, who brings a psychological firepower that will power future success. If the performer is concordant with the role, then you will see this manifest in their behavior. The objective is to see what the candidate can actually do, and most importantly, how they do it, not what they can talk about doing from behind a desk. Specificity must be at the forefront of design. The best way to see who can write great code is to ask candidates to write great code. The best way to see whether someone can deal with negative feedback is to give them negative feedback. The best way to see if someone is meticulously detailed with financial accounts is to ask them to get meticulously detailed with a set of financial accounts. This ensures you're assessing concordance for the role requirement itself, as opposed to the null results of smart and competent tests or biased opinions. Thanks to step one, our avatar, you have a precise understanding of the role and a hypothesis of what it takes to excel in that role. Now, this allows you to design accurate information gathering instruments that will iron out a candidate's level of concordance with the role. The information gathering instrument allows us to build a picture of the individual's profile versus the profile of our avatar. This is how we ensure that the square peg fits the square hole. So let's say you want to test a candidate's resilience. We've got to build an information gathering instrument that encompasses the adverse nature of the role in which resilience is required. For the special forces operator, this might include resisting interrogation by enemy forces. At a trading company, it could be having to deal with a 16-hour day and lots of negative feedback. For a junior doctor, it might be dealing with the fact that their failures can result in lost lives. Resilience is specific to the role. Completing an Ironman triathlon is no indication of whether or not a person will be resilient when it comes to hostage rescue, negotiating a merger or acquisition, or teaching a classroom of 30 children. Is the Ironman resilient outside a triathlon? We have no idea unless we test their concordance in those areas. To ensure the information gathering instruments are a replica of the real world situation, you must focus on three key areas, thinking, doing, and feeling. Thinking. We must strictly avoid laboratory conditions such as how many press-ups can you do in a minute or a battery of math questions or how well can you write an essay on a specific subject. We need objective tests that you trust will transfer to on-the-job performance, generally simplified simulations of the real things. Laboratory-style test batteries like IQ, standardized fitness tests, psychometrics are too one-dimensional. They miss too much. Most roles involve lots of subtleties that fuse together to create a unique demand. And this means performing several strengths or leveraging several strengths simultaneously. And your tests must accurately represent this. Within the finance organizations I work with or I'm a partner in, we build simulators that engage the same technological and psychological demands that the actual role will require from the individual. So in derivatives trading, yes, IQ is important, but so is dexterity, hearing, eyesight, assertive communication. Laboratory-style tests just miss all of this. Individually designed tests don't. They accurately represent the reality of the role with all the subtleties included. 
the more closely your test reflects the role, the more conviction you can have when the candidate owns it. The third component is behavior. You need to carefully consider your environment. We have to ensure that our assessment center or process represents how things actually are. So for example, in the trading example I provided, it's fast paced hormone fueled trading floor and that's the reality of the culture. So we have to recreate this in our assessment centers. We have to overemphasize who we are from the way you dress, you speak, the way you provide feedback, which can be voracious and pitiless and to the point at times. The question here is, what are the non-negotiable conditions performance will be exposed to in the role? And can the candidate operate effectively under these conditions? Whatever the reality entails, including interruptions, changing demands, time pressure, noise. If it's there, it needs to be incorporated into the test. Again, using the trading example, candidates are going to be required to work 16-hour days. Now, if you can't manage one 16-hour assessment center, then how the hell are you going to get through a whole year? The aspiring traders will also be on the receiving end of a lot of assertive, transparent feedback Due to the rapid learning trajectory and extreme demands placed on the individuals, it's a real fail fast, learn quick culture. And again, some people thrive under these conditions. Some don't. And we need to know who was who for their sakes and our own. We also need people who can learn fast from mistakes and solve their own problems. Individuals who can take in lots of information fast, digest it faster, then immediately have that desire to put it to practice. And performers who could fall flat on their faces, get up, brush themselves down, and then dive straight back in without he hesitation, usually with a smile on their faces too. So we impose these conditions in our assessment centers and the process. We even have existing employees delivering Oscar-winning performances to act out some of the conditions that candidates would be exposed to, playing the gladiatorial senior trader or the underhand broker or slothful colleague, not pulling their weight to see how they react in those scenarios. The candidate's natural reaction to all these conditions will reveal key traits predictive of their match fit or concordance within the role at our organization. And the concordant would thrive in these conditions in the assessment center. The next component is emotions. The tests must be performed with the candidates under the same emotional and physiological conditions as the learning and performance will occur in reality. So again, back to the trading example, Successful candidates uh, will experience total immersion in a fiercely competitive and assertive environment. This means at times individuals will be operating with a brain full of the stress hormone cortisol. They'll be performing in redhead. So some people are better at preventing cortisol flooding their brains than others. And some people can simply perform better with a brain full of cortisol than others. And we need to find out which of the candidates we're bringing into the organization fall into which category. There are multiple ways to flood a brain with cortisol. And cortisol is cortisol, whether the performance is an exercise or the real thing. So we'll flood our candidates' brains with cortisol using pre-exhaustion exercises, sensory stressors, and constant overload. And we'll use biofeedback technology to provide us with information on their stress response, how quickly they can stabilize after exposure to stress, and the rate of inevitable degradation across time, which the process was designed to bring. And then also how quickly candidates could recover 
and go again. Profound strengths and weaknesses reveal themselves rapidly. Well-designed auditions will sound any alarms about those who look perfect on paper, but falter on true inspection. And believe me, there will be some very big surprises there based off your subjective biased first impressions. Step four, the assessment itself. Now, the traditional benchmarks of fit for purpose, test, test scores, academic degrees, press-ups, are the supplementary warm-up act rather than the main event. Now, the traditional benchmarks of fit for purpose test scores, academic degrees or press-ups are the supplementary warm-up act rather than the main event. We're not searching for some wow factor moment like who can jump the highest, which souffle tastes best, or who has the fastest mental arithmetic. We know that psychological firepower is what demonstrates concordance. We can measure this using the following questions. They're all pretty simple. Who is having clicks, aha moments, and is responsive to feedback? Who is excited, engaged, and putting in the repetition? Who is bringing the intensity, fight, and grit? Who has a high baseline ability? Who is highly responsive to training? Who tries the hardest? Who's most focused? Who demonstrates unbreakable concentration? Who enjoys the audition? Who recovers from negative setbacks? Who takes feedback well? Who competes hard? Who pushes themselves until they drop? Who keeps their energy going all day? Who steps up when the pressure amplifies? Who doesn't want the day to end? Who grows into it? Who thrives under moments of pressure? Or we can look from the other dimension here. Who cuts corners? Who starts to whinge? Whose brain turns to scrambled egg when the pressure amplifies? Who withdraws? Who can't follow simple instructions? Who just doesn't get it? Who ultimately doesn't care that much? Who wishes it was just all over? Who starts off enthusiastic but gets bored quickly? A key factor to consider here is scoring. Now, when it comes to scoring candidates, you need to swap out open questions like, how well did they do? For binary yes or no answers that indicate the candidate did or did not meet the minimum threshold criteria. This helps eliminate abstract statements that mean nothing, such as, I don't think he's got what it takes, or she wasn't confident enough. We need to break confidence down into a series of questions with yes, no answers. For example, did the candidate point out the error in the facilitator's calculations? Yes or no? Did the candidate continue on the simulator after six consecutive errors? Yes or no? Did the candidate communicate that their mouse wasn't working correctly? Yes or no? Objective binary decisions benefit candidates too, because when the feedback is simple, there is time to give it. Plus, the feedback will be objective, so the candidates can then decide to take it or leave it. Another little recommendation for the assessment centre is the inside person. When candidates thought you weren't watching, you kind of want to be watching, so we often set incognito employees that act as an undercover agent. Embedded into the assessment center, they would acquire intelligence on candidates' behavior behind the scenes. And this usually proves a valuable information source. Another key principle here is that candidates should meet all minimum thresholds. They don't have to excel in all dimensions of the avatar. They just can't be weak in any of them. I'll never forget the moment I learned this lesson the hard way. During the assessment center, a candidate scored exceptionally well across the board. However, when we flooded his brain with cortisol, his performance fell off a cliff. Due to his impeccable performance in the tests across the board prior to this, 
we decided to give him a chance. Surprise, surprise, he started the program really strong, quickly rising to be the hottest of the hot prospects. But after nine months of intensive, expensive training, the candidate was progressively exposed to live trading where his performance began to degrade until he eventually hit a plateau. It was exactly the way he did in our assessment center. When you ignore these principles, you tend to always pay the price for it based on my experience. What you observe in the assessment day will manifest in reality. The errors will repeat. The candidates that make inappropriate statements or stupid errors in the screening process are likely to do so on the job. And this applies to the candidates who also refuse to quit when the going gets tough. It works both ways. Now, in terms of interviews, despite the earlier discussion on this podcast where I discussed the limitations, I do tend to use them, but only after successful completion of an assessment center or process. And the aim of the interview is to always then examine the context behind the actions that you've observed through the assessment process. Then we come to step five, talent confirmation. So congratulations, candidates who meet your benchmarks are now selected for talent confirmation. So based on the testing, your hire is hypothesized to have what it takes to succeed. Now it's time to put them to the sword and observe what happens. This should be an intensive, at least three-month talent validation process. The aim is to confirm concordance within the role. There should be close observation of the candidate's responsiveness to training. Performers should be exposed to a carefully constructed developmental experience, and their development trajectory should be tracked and benchmarked. There should be lots of tests and lots more feedback to set them up for success here. Then we move on to step six, which is the feedback loop. At the end of the talent confirmation process, you'll be able to see the fruits of your labor, hopefully some success, but most likely some failures too. And it's always important to cut your losers. So always celebrate that too. Now, as the roles you're screening for change, so must your assessment process. You must ensure you're screening for candidates who are concordant with the role today, not the role five years ago. The crest of the wave is the place to be here. As conditions change, some performers will be taken down a peg or two, others will sharpen. The question you need to answer here is why. We can map against our assessment process for clues, but also reinitiate step one, update your avatar if changes are identified. This might mean some adjustments to your gene pool too. And as your organization grows and changes, how you advertise the role and the values it might satisfy for potential candidates is also likely to evolve. A final point for me here is on retaining talent. Now, retention starts with selection. We work so hard to identify and build talent. You must make sure you do all you can to retain it. The key to retention is values. Conflicting values start wars, end marriages, and are why you lose talent. If you want to retain your best performers, you must provide them with the opportunity to satisfy their values. Some of our values remain an essential part of us, for who we are. Some change. As you satisfy one value, a new one usually emerges. And this is why what's important to us at one stage of our life will be different at another. The graduate, when asked what's most important to them in the context of their career, might say learning, working with smart people, or the opportunity to progress. But as they progress through the development curve and satisfy these values, new ones will appear. Now, it might be, amongst others, compensation for their hard work, freedom and autonomy, or even a desire to contribute more socially. 
if the role doesn't evolve to reflect their emerging values, then the performer will become less concordant with the role. And the consequences of this could be disengagement, irritability, a reduction in the psychological firepower they bring to the party. But eventually misalignment with values will draw the performer to something entirely new, such as a role switch or career change, and possibly with your competitors. So you really need to keep a finger on the pulse with this. The benefits of rigorous talent identification, having such a robust methodology brings three major benefits to your organization, engagement, pride, and most importantly, trust. So first up, in terms of engagement, strong talent identification gives the technical experts in your organization the motivation, confidence, and resilience to invest their time and effort into actually coaching, managing, and leading this future talent. Secondly, pride. The harder you have to work for something, the more you appreciate it. A crazy side benefit of going through such an arduous selection process is that you appreciate the job so much more. Having to earn the opportunity cultivates affection, gratitude, and a sense of pride and belonging that you've made it. Things that come easy don't feel special. Thirdly, trust. Most important of all, demanding selection processes create trust internally. When you know your colleagues have also passed a meaningful and significantly challenging test, it immediately allows you to trust them. Trust is crucial for organizational success. Without it, nothing worthwhile can be achieved. So to wrap this up, principle-based talent identification enables you to look beyond your initial snap judgments of individuals and beyond your biases to the components you know drive elite performance. Aspirational talent performing from their sweet spot. It becomes crystal clear who hits the sweet spot for the role. Hiring decisions become easy to make. And if the answer isn't a hell yes, then it's a no. The hell yes means you have an individual bursting with expandable potential, a potential superstar. I just want to say a massive thank you again to Jerry for taking the time to speak with us today. It's always a pleasure, mate, and I'll hopefully speak to you soon.